0: What is your favorite movie? Somebody raise your hand. What's your favorite movie? Remember the Titans. That's a good one. What's it back here? Chariots of Fire. She Stole Your Thunder. Right here? What? Blindside. That's a good one. Anyone else got a favorite movie? Uh, uh, right here? Facing the Giants. Lord of the Rings. Did your husband shaking his head? Disagreement on movie night? maybe? All right. Anyone else favorite movie? Anything good? Last night? What? I didn't hear that one. I find myself that I like a lot of different types of movies. A lot, but my favorite type of movie is, is, is a movie where the underdog rises to the occasion and, you know, remember the Titans is probably one of those movies where you have the underdog and it's improbable and they rise to the occasion. I love that one. And, and I love to watch the sports movies because a lot of times in, 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 you watch these corny sports movies and they all have the same storyline. It's this improbable underdog who rises to the occasion and beats the big guy. And I just love those movies. I, I, I love them. And uh, I suppose partly it's because most of us want to view ourselves as being the underdog. Most of us view ourselves as being the underdog, and we dream about being in that story where we rise above the top, and we become uh, successful, and, and, and we want to win. One of my favorite movies, and I will not deny or affirm that it may have put a tear in my eye, one of my favorite movies was The Pursuit of Happiness. And this movie was not a sports movie, but it starred Will Smith as Chris Gardner. This was a dude who had big dreams for himself, big dreams for his family. And Chris had the opportunity to become a stockbroker, but before he could become a stockbroker, he had to go through this grueling uh, internship, which meant he had to take six months and work for this company for no pay. If you've seen the movie, the movie is about the difficulty that he faces while he's in this internship and his, his wife leaves him and, and him and his son end up becoming, uh, living on the streets for, for a period of time just to get by. And the story, it ends at the very end with, with Chris getting offered the job and becoming a stockbroker. And that's just one of those woohoo kind of moments, you know, and you just want to celebrate and cheer. But one of the scenes earlier in the movie that I think is, is, is fitting is, is, is Chris and his wife, they're, they're struggling. They're struggling financially. They're struggling relationally. And, and she's frustrated. And she says, she says, Chris, I'm leaving. She says, I'm not happy. I'm not happy anymore. And, and Chris says, then fine, go get happy. Go get happy. Go do what you have to do to get happy. And what I love about that scene is it really captures our human nature. See, our nature is that we become obsessed with trying to find happiness. In fact, when we look at the uh, founding of our country, this idea of happiness is woven into that fabric. Because we think about what the Declaration of Independence says. The Declaration of Independence, when it starts out, it says we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men were created equal and endowed by their creator certain unalienable rights, among these which are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's interesting that when they wrote the Declaration of Independence, it's interesting that they guaranteed life and liberty, but happiness is only something that we can pursue. It's not guaranteed. It's almost as if the writers were saying, good luck with that. Everybody deserves the right to pursue it, but we can't guarantee, we can't promise that you will find that happiness you are looking for. And it seems like our culture, our society, we become enthralled with with the pursuit of happiness. We become obsessed with this idea and we we chase it all the time and maybe we call it the American dream. We want to chase these things that we appear that give the appearance of happiness and so we chase money and and status and and family And, and we chase all these things in the pursuit of happiness. People everywhere, whether they know it or not, they are frantically trying to find that thing that makes them happy. Might be a career, might be status, might be friendships. It might be a substance like drugs or alcohol. It might be sex, it might be status, it might be material stuff. We look for happiness in all sorts of things. In fact, I remember a number of years ago, I had an idea that if I had an iPhone, that I would be really happy. And my wife, she said, well, you know, Kevin, you don't really need an iPhone. You've got a flip phone, a dumb phone. It works just fine. Does everything you need to do on it. And I said, I know, but I really want this iPhone. And so I said, honey, if I get an iPhone, I'll be more organized and I will never be late. I have found that that iPhone did not provide the happiness I was seeking. In fact, I got that iPhone, and then a problem happened about nine months later, because they came out with the next generation of iPhone, the new iPhone. And pretty soon, this phone that I thought was going to make me so happy, man, I, I thought the next one was going to make me even happier. It's got Siri. Siri can talk to me. I mean, that's, that's going to be real happiness there. We are always pursuing happiness, and this is how we live our lives. We are waiting for that next thing to arrive, waiting for that job to come, waiting for that relationship to heal, because then when that happens, then we will be happy. We are all in a constant pursuit of happiness, and this oftentimes becomes the driving force behind the decisions that you and I make. And since we're in church, we want to spiritualize happiness. And we want to say things like, well, well, God wants me to be happy. I mean, yes, I should have these things because God wants me to be happy. And, and that sounds good. That sounds like, of course, God wants me to be happy. But uh, I don't want to burst your bubble. But your happiness is not God's ultimate goal for you. Your happiness is not God's ultimate goal for you. God is not as concerned, as much concerned with your happiness as he is with your joy. Now, you might look at those two words, happiness and joy, and think, well, they're pretty much the same thing. They're they're the same thing. You can't really differentiate between happiness and joy. But actually, there is a huge difference between these two words. In fact, when you read your Bible, the word happy is only found eight times. And primarily found in the Old Testament. It's, it's, it's a word, happiness is a word that's all about emotion. And it's all about pleasure. Happiness comes from external circumstances. Most of which are completely out of your control. Joy, on the other hand. Joy appears 88 times in the Old Testament. It appears 57 times in the New Testament. Joy is not the result of of pleasant circumstances or or prosperity or success. Joy is not an emotion. It's not a mood. It's not a feeling. Rather, it's an attitude that can be defined as, as a settled state of contentment, of confidence, and hope. When I think of the word joy, I think of the word satisfied. The point of being satisfied with where you are, with what is going on. Joy is prescribed by God as an attitude that is supposed to flow out of our lives. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit that should exhibit our lives if we are believers in Jesus. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, meekness, self-control. Against such there is no law. We should have joy that is flowing out of our life if you are a believer in Jesus. And I'll be honest, as I start looking at 2016, as I start thinking about the last year, man, I'm kind of tired of constantly pursuing happiness. I'm tired of always looking for where the next bout of happiness is going to come from because what I'm finding is happiness can be fleeting. It can be fleeting. It's there one moment, and then it's gone. That phone brings you happiness for a while until the next one comes out, and then it's gone. Whatever it is brings you happiness tends to be fleeting. And I'm tired of pursuing happiness. I want joy. I want what joy offers. I want to be settled. I want to be content. I want to be full of hope. I want to be satisfied in my life. So today... If you have a Bible, I'm going to invite you to turn to the book of Philippians, the book of Philippians, as we start out a new series today that we're going to call Joy. Philippians is the 11th book of the New Testament. It's a short book, only four chapters. If you need help finding it in your Bible, uh, you can turn to the first couple pages in your Bible. God gave us something really great called the Table of Contents. Actually, I don't know if God gave that to us. I think the, the publishers gave that to us, but regardless... You can find it there. And as we look in the book of Philippians, one of the, the, the things that you're going to see, one of the constant themes throughout this book is this idea of joy. Is this idea of joy. It's, it's going to come again and again, this idea of joy. Philippians, the book of Philippians is actually a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Philippi. And so Philippians is, really means the people in Philippi. So you think of Yacamon, you've got Yakamites, you've got Yakavegas. That's kind of what Philippians is, it's the people of Philippi, specifically the church in Philippi. The Apostle Paul, we know that he was one of the greatest missionaries who ever lived. And he started numerous churches. He planted a number of churches during his his, his missionary journeys. And sometime around 51, 52 AD, Paul was traveling with a young man named Timothy. And Acts chapter 16 tells the story that that, that he had a, a dream, a vision at night. that That God told Paul and Timothy to go to Macedonia. And so Paul obeys, and, and while, he goes to, while he's there in Philippi, which is in Macedonia, uh, he, he meets a businesswoman named Lydia, who hears the message of Jesus Christ, of the life, the death, the burial, the sacrifice of Jesus. And she, as well as her family, they put their faith in Jesus. After Lydia, the businesswoman, puts her faith in Jesus, uh, Paul is walking around town and there comes this, this slave girl who is possessed by uh, an evil spirit, by a demon. And, and, and Paul prays and she's miraculously healed and she places, places her faith in Jesus as well. But the problem was, is that slave girl had some owners. And because this girl was possessed by a demon, they used that evil spirit to make money for themselves. She could somehow see in the future. And so they would take this girl and force her to do these things so they could make money. And when she was freed from the evil spirit, when she was healed by Paul, those people lost their income, source of income. So they had Paul and Timothy thrown in jail. And it happened that while they were in jail... In the middle of the night, there's a massive earthquake that opens the door to the jail. And the guard comes, and the guard starts getting really worried, thinking all the prisoners have gone. They're going to flee. And he gets ready to grab his sword because he knows he let the prisoners go. It's going to be really bad for him. So he gets his sword ready to take his own life. And that's when Paul calls out to him and says, Hey, dude, hey, dude, we're still here. Nobody has gone. And that's when the guard says, man. Something is different about you, Paul. Paul, what must I do to be saved? And Paul tells him, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that Philippian jailer, as well as the whole family, believe on Jesus that day, become Christians. They get baptized uh, that day. And so this becomes the start of the church in Philippi. You've got Lydia, the businesswoman. You've got the girl who was formerly uh, demon-possessed. And you've got the the jailer and their families. This is the the beginning of the church in Philippi. And Paul, Paul, as he starts writing this letter uh, to the Philippians, 10 years has passed. 10 years has passed. Paul has continued on his missionary journeys. In fact, when Paul writes this letter, he is sitting in prison in Rome. He's been arrested for proclaiming Jesus Christ. And he is sitting, waiting trial in prison in Rome. And quite, quite honestly, he's going to be preparing potentially to face a, an execution order for his, his message about Jesus. And this is when Paul writes this letter. This letter is in response to what the Philippians church had done. They had continued to support Paul even after he left Philippi to go start other churches and continue his missionary work. They, they continued to support him financially. They continued to pray for him. And when they found out that Paul was in prison, they sent a guy by the name of Epaphrodiphas uh, to him, who may have been the pastor of the church. We don't exactly know. They sent him to go and encourage Paul while he was in Rome and so this letter that Paul is writing is in response to them sending this man to encourage them. So during this letter, we're going to see that Paul's going to teach us a ton about the Christian life. But again, one of the themes that's going to come up time and time and time again in this book is this idea of joy. And so it's fitting for us, as I think we would say, we want to be people of joy. We want to have that, that satisfied feeling in our life where we can be content with wherever God has placed us, I think it's fitting for us to look at the book of Philippians and say, what can we learn about joy? So there's a big introduction to the book of Philippians. Today, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 3 through 11. So I invite you uh, to turn there. It's also going to be on the screen. You're welcome to, to read it along. Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. And that is God's word for us today. Would you pray with me? God, I just am excited for the opportunity to open up your word and be able to to look at this letter that Paul wrote to the Philippians that's been preserved for us to hear today. That God, there's this idea of joy, that we could have joy in our lives, a constant joy presence of contentment, of satisfaction, of peace. God, as we think about all that you have in store for us, God, I pray that this would be one of the things that we want most, that we want your joy, that we want to be people full of joy. God, I pray that you would use this, this time together today to, to help us grow deeper in love with you, deeper appreciation for what you've done for us. God, I pray that as we look at, at what Paul's going to write to us today, that God, you would give us clarity and understanding and that God, you would help us to grow more in love with you today, God. We love you and we praise you. And I ask this in your holy and precious name. Amen. One of the things that you see in this letter, especially as we start out reading, you see as Paul is writing this, there is a deep affection that Paul writes with as he writes to the, to the church at Philippi, to his friends in, uh, in Philippi. There's this deep affection that goes on. There's a genuine joy in the relationship between Paul and the Philippians. And you see it time and time again in these short couple of verses he writes it in verse 3 and 4. He says, every time I think of you, I thank God with joy because of you. He says in, he says in verse 7, he says, I, I hold you in my heart. And in verse 8, he says, I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. There is a deep connection between Paul and the people in Philippi, the church in Philippi. There's this joyous relationship. There's this this love that that is, is flowing between them. Paul may be in chains in Rome, but his heart is not in chains as he writes to his dear friends. Because there is a genuine love. There is a joyous relationship that flows between Paul and the Philippians, even though they are separated. There is a joy in their relationship. And I'm not sure about you, but man alive, I want that kind of a relationship. I want that kind of a relationship with people who, who would, sit, would think of me and be filled with joy because of our relationship. That they would think of me and, 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 and be concerned and, and, and want to have that, that relationship and, and be in touch and in contact with me. I, I mean, isn't that what we all want in relationships? I want people to be filled with joy because of our relationship. It's natural for you and I to want this type of relationship, these type of things. Because what happened when God created us, he created us with a natural uh, uh, desire for relationships. He created us to be in community. Now, you might say, well, I'm an introvert. I don't need community. No, introverts need community as well. They just don't like as big of community as ext- extroverts. And so whether you're introvert or extrovert, we all have this desire inside of us and this need for relationships, this need for community, for for fellowship. We want to be known. We want to be a part of something amazing. Now, I'm not sure about you, but what I found, though, is sometimes... Relationships can be messy. Sometimes relationships are difficult. The problem is we're all sinners. We're all selfish. We're all motivated by us as numero uno. And that complicates relationships. And relationships oftentimes can be very messy. And so as I read how Paul is writing about the Philippians, as I read about the joy in their relationship, I think, man, that's... That's what I want. So maybe maybe Paul can teach us how we can have joy in our relationships, even joy in this relationship here at Restoration Church, about how we can have that kind of affection for one another and be that kind of of love and genuine concern for each other. So today what we want to do is look at these couple of verses and say, what can we learn about having joy in our relationships? What are the the foundations that Paul has in his relationship with the Philippians that we can put into practice right here between you and I? So the first thing that we're going to learn from the joy of Paul's relationship with the Philippians is that the foundation of of their relationship is the fellowship of the gospel. The foundation of their relationship is the fellowship of the gospel. This is what Paul says in verse 3. He says, I thank my God and all remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership and the gospel from the first day uh, until now. This is the foundation of their relationship. Paul says it very clearly. That they have had a mutual commitment to the gospel from the first day that Paul planted the church even until now, many years later. They have this mutual commitment, this, this, this par, the partnership towards the gospel. The Greek word in verse 5 for partnership is koinonia, which is actually more commonly translated as fellowship in the New Testament. It's translated fellowship. And so the question is, well, what, is, what does fellowship mean? What does it mean to have a fellowship of the gospel? And so I want to be clear. You know, when, when we look at the word fellowship, you know, our society has a little bit changed what fellowship is. And, we, and what we do, especially in the Christian world, is we might go have coffee together and say, that's fellowship. We may have a potluck after church and say, there we go. We have fellowship. This is what we're looking for, Right. But see, the fellowship that, that Paul is writing about here is much deeper than just coffee after church or, 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 or potluck after lunch, after, after church. Now, I'll be honest, I love having coffee with people. If you would love to have coffee with me, I'd love to have coffee with you. Let, contact me, let's, let's do that this week. I'd love to have coffee with you. And I've never refused food that's been put in front of me. If you put food in front of me, I will eat it. So let's do that. I got no problem with that. But the fellowship that Paul is talking about is deeper than just over coffee or over a meal. The heart of the fellowship of the gospel is a self-sacrificing conformity to a shared vision. You guys mentioned Lord of the Rings. Anybody, anybody watched the movie Lord of the Rings? All right. Anybody read the book Lord of the Rings? How many of you didn't even know there was a book? Yeah, there we go. A few honest people. Yeah, yeah. Increase your hobbies a little bit. Start reading a little bit more. And the movie, The Fellowship of the Ring, Lord of the Rings, the first one, Fellowship of the Ring. There's a ragtag group of nine different people who come together. And if you remember this movie, you've got, you've got Frodo Baggins. You know, he's, he's the, the short little hobbit with, with big old hairy feet. He never wears shoes, kind of gross guy. He's got three little hobbit friends that, that go with him. Uh, then there's a great wizard by the name of Gandalf. There's, there's two regular men, and I'm not going to remember their names. My son Cameron would be able to tell me. I'm not going to deal with that. There was an elf, and there was a dwarf. And so you've got these nine people who are very diverse, who come from very different backgrounds, this ragtag group of people. But what happens is they come together for a very specific purpose. They go on a very dangerous journey to Mount Doom. Because they have this, this magical but evil ring called the One Ring. Is that what it's called? The One Ring? And they know that the only way for them to control the power of this ring is to destroy it in the fires of Mount Doom. And so these nine people, they come together for a common purpose. They want to destroy the ring. And so they, they, they are completely diverse. I mean, these are people that you wouldn't think have anything in common, but they come together with a shared vision, a shared purpose. And that is what brings them together, what unifies them, is this one thing. This is the picture of the fellowship that Paul is speaking of. It is a picture of of people committing to a common purpose, a a, a self-sacrificing commitment to a common vision. Another way to look at this is Dana was up here leading worship. Adam was playing on the drums. If if they came together and said, hey, I'm going to take my life savings and you take your life savings... One of them is married, one of them is single, so neither of them really has that great of a life savings. One of them, he has kids, not, not many, not just that. So if we were to take our life savings and plump it together, and if we were to buy a fishing boat, if we buy a fishing boat, and then we go and, and do everything we can to make that fishing boat successful, that is a fellowship. That is a commitment. That is, we are putting everything in. We are having a fellowship towards this common goal. This is what it means to have a fellowship of the gospel. The Philippians, from the very first day that Paul was with them, they committed to partnership in advancing the gospel. The gospel in their own lives, of growing deeper in love with Christ, as well as taking the gospel out so more people would come into a relationship with Jesus. And this has happened, they, they used to support Paul as he was on his missionary journeys. They would say, hey, we have, we're have we going to sacrifice of our own resources and our own money to send to Paul so that the gospel can continue to advance. This is all about sacrifice towards a common vision and a common goal verse 7 says that their their fellowship of the gospel between the philippians and paul it even continued when paul was in prison and when the gospel was being questioned and doubted see this is where i want us to have a proper understanding of what the fellowship of church is supposed to be about because unfortunately, what happens is, is, is people will go from church to church to church looking for fellowship. We want to find the right fellowship. And really what they're looking for is they want friendship. They're, really what they're looking for is, I want friendship. What they're seeking is an illusion. They're not seeking godly fellowship. They're not seeking the fellowship of the gospel. They're seeking friendship. There's a lot of different places you can find friendship. But what the church offers specifically is a fellowship of the gospel. Now, I'll be honest, I want to be friends with you as well because it's, it's, it's better just to be in friendship with people that you're in fellowship to the gospel. It's just it's not good if you don't like each other. I don't know if there's anybody here that don't like, so that's a good thing, right? But, but but specifically, what the church offers is a fellowship of the gospel. That's what we're supposed to be about Christian fellowship, godly fellowship, it isn't found in just a friendship. It's, it's, a, it's a joint commitment to, to sacrifice and to fight for the gospel, to be advanced in our own lives and to be spread throughout our community. That is what the church is about. That is what the fellowship of the church is about. That is what brings us together. That's what unifies us. It's this, this, this idea of advancing the gospel. And in response to the fellowship that they've experienced, in response to the fellowship of the gospel, Paul writes a rather stunning verse, verse 6. This is one of those verses that should be underlined. It should be highlighted. It should be starred. Uh, Do whatever you can. Put some blinking lights on it. Because Paul writes in verse 6, he says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What Paul is saying is he's saying, he's saying, I've seen that God has begun a good work in you. I've seen God's hand in your life, your commitment to the fellowship of the gospel. I've seen that in your life. I've seen that fruit. I've seen that action. I've seen the commitment that you are sincere in your faith. And I know that God has truly begun a work in you. And because of that, because God has begun a work in you, Paul says, I know something about God, that when God begins a work in you, that he will bring it to completion. He won't leave you there. He's not leaving you on your own to figure it out. He's saying, I know that God will carry you through, that God will develop you, that God will grow your faith. What a phenomenal verse for us to be thinking about as you think about 2016, as you think about what God has in store for you for this year. Because no matter what you are facing today, no matter what you are facing this year, you can be encouraged to know that God's good work continues in your life, even when you don't see it. God continues His work right in the middle of that tough situation you have at work. God continues... Uh, God continues to work right in the middle of that situation with your teenager, or as you battle with your budget, or as you struggle with your weight, or as you struggle with discouragement, whatever it is, God continues to work in your life, even when you don't see it. God moves you forward as you submit yourself to him. And it is his presence and his faithful work that gives us confidence. See, as you struggle with your finances, you can say to your spouse, you can say to your friend, we can get through this because Christ is working right now to complete what he has begun in us. As you think about that difficult conversation you need to have with a loved one or with a friend, you can have confidence and tell yourself, Christ is working right now to complete what he has already started in me when it seems as though you're losing the battle to sin, you can remind yourself, I have hope for victory because Christ is working in me right now to complete what he has already begun. Let me tell you why this verse just overflows out of joy of my own heart. Because as I reflect on on. 15, 16 years of following Jesus. It is indeed Christ who has made the difference in my faith. I haven't grown as a Christian because I'm so awesome. I haven't grown because I, have, I have, have so much to offer. It is Christ who has worked in me that has brought the difference in my life. It is indeed Christ who has made the difference, not me. It is not my grip on God that has made the difference. It is His grip on on me. See, I'm, I am not confident that I'm awesome enough to be a better Christian. I am not confident in my goodness. I'm not confident in my character. I'm not confident in my history. I'm not confident in my, my pastor skills. I am not confident in my perseverance. I am confident in God. I am confident that this word to Lydia and to the formerly demon-possessed little girl, and this word to to the jailer, and this word to myself and to you, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This is a promise for every man, woman, and woman and child who would place their faith in Jesus Christ. This is a promise for every one of us in here. If we will place our faith in Jesus, that he will continue to work in our life to bring us to the point of Jesus Christ. The foundation of this is a fellowship, is a commitment to the fellowship of the gospel. So the first thing we learn about the joy of Paul's relationship with the Philippians, is that the foundation is a commitment to the fellowship of the gospel. The second thing, though, that we're going to learn from Paul is if you look at verses 9 through 11. Paul, what he's saying in this in these couple of verses, he's saying, I, I, I'm praying for you. And this is specifically in verses 9 through 11, how I've been praying for you. The second thing we'll see is that Paul's joy in his relationship with the Philippians leads him to be concerned for their spiritual maturity. It leads him to be concerned for the spiritual maturity. Look what it says in verse 9. And it says, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul prays for the spiritual maturity of the Philippians. Philippians. Makes me wonder, what are the things that we're praying about when we think about other people? What are we really praying for them? And I think, you know, there's lots of things that Paul could have prayed. He could have prayed, you know, Lydia, I'd love for your business to continue to grow. I'd love for you to to start other locations for your business and and be really successful in your business. He could have prayed for the little uh, formerly demon-possessed girl. I mean, I want you to find a husband. I want you to have these things. These are not bad things to pray for. But, but this, this joy in his relationship comes and he prays specifically that they would have spiritual maturity. And he prays three specific areas of spiritual maturity. First, he prays in verse 9, and he prays that they would grow in love, that their love would abound more and more. What I find interesting about this is when he prays that their love would abound more and more, notice that love does not have an object. He doesn't pray that your love for God would grow more and more. He doesn't pray that your love for people would grow more and more. I think the reason why Paul does not have an object attached to that love is because a love for God and a love for people are supposed to be interrelated. There was a Pharisee who asked Jesus uh, during his earthly ministry. He said, Jesus, what's the most important commandment? And Jesus said there's two important commandments. To love God, and to love others. As you love God, the byproduct of loving God is loving people. The more you love God, the more you begin to love people. So he prays that their love would, that they would grow in love. Secondly, he prays that their love would not be just some generic, mushy kind of love that he's talking about. He, he's talking, he's not talking about sentimentality. Paul prays that their love would grow more and more, but that their love would grow with knowledge and discernment so they can approve what is excellent. The love has, has, has a purpose, has intentions. The knowledge that Paul speaks about when he says, growing in love, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge. This knowledge is a knowledge of God and a knowledge of Christ. It is a personal knowledge. What Paul is saying is that when, Christians, uh, when, when, when Christian love comes from the work of the Holy Spirit through the revelation of God's holy word, the more you are in the word, the more your knowledge of God and Christ will increase, and the more your love will overflow. It's this, this idea that the more you, you learn about God, the more you read God's word, the, the, the more love, more knowledge you'll have, and the more love that will flow out of your life. And let me just be really practical. Again, we're starting the year out. We're, you know, some of you are thinking about resolutions and these sorts of things. One of the greatest things that you can do for your faith this year is to be in God's word, to read God's word on a daily basis. And I'll tell you well, what I did. I have a Bible reading plan that I started... A couple days ago on the first, I've got copies of it on, on the table out here. I've kind of finagled it a little bit to fit my needs. But, but there's a Bible reading plan. You can read alongside me everything that I'm reading this year to be in God's word. Because I tell you what, when you read God's word on a daily basis, it feeds your soul. And it helps you to grow in knowledge. And guess what the byproduct of that is? Your love flows more and more see a, a superficial love for God is a sure sign of a superficial knowledge of God you want to have a greater love have a greater knowledge of who God is and what he has done this is why we give a priority in in, in, in our times on Sunday mornings to the opening of God's Word to the study of God's Word because we want our knowledge and our love to grow and this knowledge what Paul says, this knowledge leads to discernment. An ability to not only distinguish between right and wrong, but also distinguish from best and second best. That we can pursue the things that are good and that are best. Third thing that Paul prays for in spiritual maturity, verses 10 and 11, he prays that they would be ready for the coming of Christ. That they would be filled with the fruit of righteousness. Ultimately, this is the goal a spiritual maturity, that we would be ready for Jesus. That our lives would bring glory and honor and praise to God. So as I think about this, I think about, well, this is a great message. We've learned a lot about joy and relationships. How does this relate to you and me in Restoration Church? See, in a couple of weeks, we're going to have something that we call our annual celebration last Sunday of the month. Uh, just a great opportunity. If you say, well, what's an annual celebration? It's a fancy name for our business meeting. It's kind of one of the things we do as a church. We have these meetings, and we're supposed to uh, approve our budget, and we're going to do that. We're going we're to be able to present elders for the first time at Restoration Church and have the congregation affirm elders of the church. And so there are some important things that are going to happen at this annual celebration. Mark it on your calendar. We'll do lunch uh, after church on the 31st of this, this of January. But to me, what I'm most excited about for this year's annual celebration is to talk through the goals that our leadership team has set for Restoration Church this upcoming year. Because honestly, I wholeheartedly believe that God has great things in store for us in 2016. I believe that God has great things in store for Restoration Church this year. But one thing I know for sure is that these things, for these things to happen, for us to see the goals that we have for our church, for that to happen, it's going to require something of every one of us in here. It's going to require a partnership, a fellowship to the gospel, not a friendship. I mean, I hope we're friends. I hope we can do things that friends do. But the necessary ingredient for the joy in our relationships this year for the joy in our lives, for the joy in our church, for, for the, the the goals of our church. The necessary ingredient is a fellowship in the gospel. You will give it a, begin to say, Well, well, real practically, what does a fellowship of the gospel actually mean? What does it actually look like? It's a great term, this idea. Oh, we're committed to the same purpose. But but what does that look like for us that we can grasp onto and commit to? And I'm going to tell you, there's three things I'm going to ask of you this year to make a commitment to the fellowship of the gospel at Restoration Church. Three things. I'm going to ask you to love God, to love people, and to serve others. Three things, very simply. Love God, love people, and to serve others. To love God. The primary way that we do this at Restoration Church is through our Sunday worship. Our Sundays, the goal every week that you come here to worship every Sunday is that you would know Christ a little bit more, a little bit deeper. Our priority is going to be to praise God, to read and to study His Word. And, and, and the goal for us is that you would grow deeper in your love for God through the Sunday morning worship service. That's just the natural goal. We want you to grow deeper in love with God. And so make a commitment. Make a commitment to love God. Make it a commitment to Sunday worship. Second thing. Second thing. We're going to ask you to love others. To love people. Now we talked about this a little bit earlier. The byproduct of loving God is to love others. To love people. And so we we know Sunday mornings are not enough. Sunday mornings, you know, we're here for an hour and a half, and, and there's a bunch of people here. You may get a chance to connect for a few minutes. Uh, but it's, it's hard to, to really love people on, on a Sunday morning because it just isn't enough time. It's enough uh, one-on-one time. And so the primary way that we want to encourage you to love people is through our life groups. Life groups are, are groups of 6 to 12 people, unless you're in the Scots group. The Scots have like 22 people, something like that. Uh, Life groups are are groups of 6 to 12 people who meet throughout the week, meet once a week, and they they get more personal, uh, have more personal time in God's word, to have personal application. It's an opportunity to encourage other people, to pray for each other. We have, when we have life groups set up later this month, uh, there's going to be a variety of nights that are available, a variety of locations, and there's there's all these options for you. In fact, some groups are really fun. They do potlucks every, every every evening. Again, if you think about having a group in the middle of the week, it's nice to be able to say, I don't have to make a big dinner. I can just bring something to group and we can eat that and, and call that good. So the way that we're going to encourage you to love people is, is to commit to being in a group. To be in relationship with people who are saying, I want to grow deeper in my knowledge and my love of God. And finally, the third thing, we're going to ask you to serve others. This is how we accomplish the second part of our mission statement of making Christ known. The easiest thing is this can be done right here at Restoration Church. Man, you could serve in the children's ministry. You could serve in in the youth ministry. You could serve in our first impressions team. You could serve in our greeting team. You could serve on our setup team. All of these things are here for a purpose. There's nothing that we do that's just by accident. We aren't just saying, hey, let's come to church and let's do these things because we just think they're kind of a cool thing to do. Everything we do is intentional because we want to make Christ known. Commit to serving in some capacity. To say, you know what? I'll step in and fill a need. I'll step in and fill a role because I want to serve others. Now, this can be done through short-term mission trips. This can be done through, through serving the least and the lost of our city in the name of Jesus. This can even be done, we have a couple prayer groups that meet throughout the week. This can be done in praying for our city, praying for our world, praying for our church. The fellowship of the gospel. Very practical. I'm asking three things of you to commit to the fellowship of the gospel, to experience the joy in relationship. I'm going to ask you to love God, to love people, and to serve others. And some of you say, well, man, I've been at the church for a while, and I'm just I'm not quite feeling that joy of relationship that you're talking about here. Let me ask you, are you doing all three of those things? Because I, I tell you, if we will all make a commitment to these three things, I believe that God can and will do a tremendous work right here at Restoration Church, right here in our lives. Amen? Let's pray. God, we just want to thank you for who you are. Thank you for your grace. Thank you, God, that our our faith is not dependent on ourselves. God, that we aren't confident in ourselves as being worthy of, of salvation, worthy of anything. But God, our confidence is in you. You, who has began a good work in each and every one of us, will bring it to completion that you will continue to work on our lives, that you will continue to draw us closer to you, that you will continue to change us to being in the image of your Son. God, we thank you for that. We praise you for that. We praise you for Jesus and what Jesus accomplished on the cross for us, that he accomplished victory and freedom. God, I pray that we would have a kind of commitment to that gospel, that we would be committed to each other, that we would say, we want to be in that fellowship of the gospel, that we're not just looking for friends, we're not just looking for for happiness, but God, we want that joy that you have offered to us. That God, you would, would take this church and give us the joy of that relationship, the joy of the fellowship of the gospel, that we would be united in that purpose. Not to to make ourselves feel good, but to bring glory to your name. To take the gospel and to spread it out. That we would know you deeper. That we would love you more. And that more people would come into a relationship with you, God. That's what we want to see. God, I pray that as we look at this very practical way that we can respond to this fellowship. God, I pray that you would help us to make that commitment to that fellowship of the gospel. To make that simple commitment to love God, to love people, and to serve others. God, I pray that you would do a work in our hearts. I pray that you would help us to connect as the way that Paul connected with the Philippians. That there would be a genuine love and affection between every one of us that is based on the foundation of our fellowship, of our partnership towards the gospel. God, I pray that you would do a work in our hearts, that you do a work in our lives. God, I pray that you would do a work in our church. God, I submit myself to you. I submit myself to this fellowship. God, I pray as we have this opportunity to respond to your word, And I pray that we would make that commitment before you today. That we would make that commitment to the fellowship of the gospel. God, we love you and we praise you and we ask this in your name. Amen.